Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more. More meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Hello, hello. Welcome. This is Danielle Delamar. You are listening to episode 160. And so that I don't sort of freak out and start, you know, getting anxious and losing my words, I'm going to just name that my family is sort of active right now. Like we've got a lot of sort of voices and at least there's no like screaming or anything like that, right? I've got a five-year-old and a 10-year-old. So sometimes that's a thing, Um, but it's not right now. Um, But also the dog just barked as well. And the dog has been a little active in the last few minutes. So I'm just going to name that and say, you know, if that comes up while I'm talking, just disregard it and I will try to do the same. All right. So this month we are really focusing on connections and the power of connections. And as I say that, I'm realizing that my just naming that my family is being sort of active and loud right now (laughs) is a way to connect, right? I don't have to sort of shut down the experiences I'm having. I can just sort of put them out there, right? I get to show up fully and connected to myself. But I also get to connect to all of you who resonate with that experience, right? So again, this month, it's about connecting to ourselves. It's about connecting to other people. And I'm really wanting to emphasize that connecting with people outside your immediate circles, right? People that you have to sort of make an effort to talk to. People you have to make an effort to maybe ask questions of or gather information from. And I'll go back to what David Mendes said in a previous episode this month, right? I think his was on March 1st. And he talked about how conversations, new conversations with new people and stepping outside of your box, right, can really lead you on a path to transformation. And so in that vein, today I am going to re-release the interview I did with Santa Franson about a year ago. And the reason I'm releasing this interview is, well, there are three reasons. One, it's an excellent interview, and if you missed it, this gives you a chance to um, to listen. Two, Santa and I last year had done a little switcheroo kind of thing where I talked to her community of academic women, and then she came and talked on my podcast. And by the way, Santa is uh, an associate professor as well as a narrative coach. Anyway, to get back to my second reason about connections, right, she had heard me on Kathy Mazak's podcast, reached out to me, and um, I don't know, months later, we ended up connecting again, and as a result, we both had these amazing conversations that 
many different people could listen in on. Right. So all these all these sort of connection building experiences that led to what Santa and I created last year. All right. So the third reason I want to bring her interview back for this series on connection building is that Santa Franson is going to be like a guest host on the podcast next week. She's going to be interviewing Dr. Patrice Buzanel, who she interviewed for her academic women community. And I'm going to be releasing that interview here. Okay, this is the other connection you have to hear about. This is this is like mind-blowing. So I'm emailing Patrice Buzanel to ask her if it's okay for me to release the interview she did with Santa. And in that email, I find out that she very much knows my husband and his scholarship, which just cracks me up. Um, So anyway, connections are everywhere. And um, well, I guess I should say we've tapped into some scholars who do organizational communication. And that's part of why these connections are sort of blowing up on me. All right, connection-wise, let me tell you this story. My friend Katie, who I have been friends with for over 20 years, and I actually met her because she entered her PhD program in organizational communication at the same time as um, my husband. And so they were in the same cohort. I met her, you know, during orientation week, and um, we became friends And Katie now, I mean, that was back in Utah, and Katie now lives in the Denver area, where, which is where I live as well. (laughs) Like, randomly, we both ended up here. And we live about mm, 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes away from each other. We meet, you know, in person, like, every once in a while. We, you know, both took our kids to the museum a couple weeks ago, for example. And and our kids know each other and they're friends. But Katie went to Sweden last summer to um, visit some friends and to do a little bit of work. And she walked into the office of one of her academic friends. And on the bulletin board, (laughs) get this, was a post-it note. And the post-it note read... In quotes, abandoning myself over and over and over again so that I could belong to whatever group I thought I should belong to. And then at the bottom of that, it says Danielle Delamar. This friend of hers in Sweden had listened to the interview Santa had facilitated with me in her community group. And she thought that these words I said were wise and powerful. And so she put this post-it note up on her bulletin board in her office. And my friend Katie, who I have known for 21 years, she went all the way to Sweden (laughs) last June and saw my words 
posted on her Swedish colleague's bulletin board. <laughs> and I thought that was so awesome. And she actually took a picture of the post-it note and texted it to me. How is that for connections, right? Like, what is happening? I I think that in so many ways, I felt like I had abandoned academia and, you know, there were all these sort of, in my mind, burn bridges, right? Like, I just don't even belong to academia anymore. It's not for me. And actually, the more I do this work, <laughs> the more I realize I very much belong to academia, just in a different way than I did earlier in my career. I actually feel like I belong more now. I feel like I'm not an outsider in the same way as I used to be. Um, I used to believe that I didn't belong and I had to sort of overwork and um, fight to show that um, I wasn't an imposter. And now, because of the conversations I have that are so authentic and um, we talk about things that um, are so alive to the daily lives of, of academics, I actually feel very, very firmly planted in the world that I thought didn't accept me. <laughs> Go figure, right? It wasn't until I got real about what I cared about that I actually found myself belonging to the very place that I always thought was sort of too good for me, right? I don't have to do the academic game in the same way I used to but I still get to belong, right? And it feels really good to have these kinds of connections. It's like I'm healing this relationship with myself, right? I had this part of me that just kept telling me that um, I didn't belong and I wasn't good enough. And that part, the more I sort of move more and more deeply into a, a career that really fits me and suits me, the more I move into that, the more that part settles down. And it's like, oh, yeah, huh? Yeah, I guess you do belong. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm connected more to myself. And in being connected more to myself, I'm connected more to all these people who I always thought were too good for me. Right. I do belong. The kicker is that you have to belong to yourself before you can belong to anyone else. All right. That said, I'm going to go ahead and hit rewind and take you back to last spring, spring of 2022, when Dr. Santa Franson and I had this amazing conversation. Um, so, so I will reintroduce you to her right now. Here is Dr. Sana Franson now. Sana, how's it going? It's going good. Thank you. How are you? I am pretty good. We were just talking about spring. Um, and I gotta say, we went into spring here in Denver um, for, I don't know, uh, maybe a week. And now we're back to winter. <laughs> Very, very, very cold. Yeah. And so what's it like where you are? And tell us where you are. 
Well, I am in Lund, Sweden, so it's in the southern part of Sweden. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been a very dark winter, I must say. It's always a dark winter in Sweden, where we have sort of daylight from nine to four, perhaps uh, four p.m. So uh, okay. now the light has returned, and um, sort of spring is in the air. But I must say, it's not more than two days ago where it was snowing so it can shift pretty rapidly but it gives you a very hopeful feeling and that's very nice oh doesn't it I know that week was so lovely yeah. <laughs> that we experienced here you're right it was a lot of hope yeah. it was a lot of hope it was and it was energy and oh I'm gonna do so many great things exactly. <laughs> and now we're in cold again yeah um but yes okay so Sana, I am so happy to have you here. You are doing some really interesting stuff that I didn't even know you were doing when we first talked. <laughs> like, I knew you were doing some cool stuff, but I didn't know, like, the extent of it until we actually had an email exchange about it. And so you are a narrative coach, and um, that just in and of itself is super interesting to me. Um, would you mind just sort of talking about what that means and who you help um, and how that came about? Anything you want to say about it? Just tell us the general story about how this happened. Sure. So, well, first and foremost, I am an associate professor at Lund University in organization studies. And mm -hmm. my research interest um, circulates around um, scandals and uh, organizational organizational crisis and how employees and managers within organizations respond to an organizational crisis. And to understand that, I use theories of identity, meaning-making, um, and narratives. And after some time, I thought... Is there any way where I could sort of use this interest in uh, sense-making narrative identity um, in another way outside of my research? So I started looking and I found, um, uh, found out that there was in Copenhagen, which is not that far away from where uh, I live, that there was a place where I could get um, a narrative coaching and consulting education. So I did that. Mm. Um, and it was um, uh, a way for me to learn ways in which the theories and the philosophy of, of narrative research could be used in ways uh, to move people either one-to-one -one in conversation, coaching conversations, or uh, one to many in terms of teams and organizations and, and facilitate learning and change. So that's how I sort of started um, the interest in narrative coaching. And Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I, as part of this uh, two-year training program, I sort of started writing out to people <laughs> I knew on social media, uh, do you happen to uh, have a problem you want me to uh, help you with? And um, so I, I started it as a side hustle and, and basically with the idea of training myself in using these 
specific ways of asking questions and narrative um, ideas around uh, facilitating change. And then uh, I started doing it more professionally. And then one day um, a researcher called me and said, I really would like someone to coach me, but I haven't been able to find someone that can help me since I'm in academia. And and it's not, uh, the average coach doesn't know much about the academic context. Um, and that made me realize that perhaps there were more uh, academics uh, here in Scandinavia that would um, uh, benefit from having conversations with me. So I did two things. I I started offering my uh, coaching services to females with academic backgrounds. So it's both um, women in academia, but it's also uh, others that, that work in corporations or are entrepreneurs. Um, yeah, I help them sort of thrive with their career and in their uh, in their work. Um, and then the other thing I did was that I started. Um, a Facebook group for female academics in um, in Scandinavia. As I learned through my coaching conversations, that many of the issues that that uh, we face um, uh, are shared, but we often find think that that it is um, an individual problem. Mm, mm. Okay, so what are some of the things? Um, by the way, this is such a cool story, and. I just, I, I guess I want to pause for a second and just sort of emphasize, as I often do on the podcast, if you are a researcher that is really interested in doing some like tangible sort of hands-on work that goes, you know, that, that uses your research to do some like practical stuff, um, this is like, this is such a good example of how this works. Um, and then it allows you, I guess, let me ask you this. What does it allow you, what does the coaching work allow you to do that you weren't necessarily getting in your traditional academic work? Yeah, I think um, part of the academic work is that you uh, try and publish articles uh, and do sort of um, organize research processes and conduct research, but it's very long processes. So it is, um, it often takes many years from you do an initial interview until you uh, go through transcribing the interview, analyzing the interview and all the other interviews. <laughs> then you write, um, uh, your finding sections, then you write a paper, then you present it at a conference, then you revise it, then you submit it, <laughs> then you revise it again, and, and you go through that for years, right? And then at some point, there is <laughs> hopefully um, the publication. Um, here, I found doing my uh, narrative coaching as a side hustle that I was able to, in the coaching conversation, to actually make a difference for other people in the time span of an hour or over a couple mm. of sessions and I found that was truly rewarding and uh, 
being able to use all the theoretical knowledge, all the practical experience I have doing qualitative research and doing interviews and observations to actually use that in a completely different um, context where uh, it could actually help people to thrive and, and feel better and make choices in okay. their lives. That's so good. That's so good. Okay. So give us an example, like what is a really memorable sort of session or, or I don't know, series of coaching sessions that you worked somebody through or worked a group through that, um, that you still, that, that you love, that, that you loved doing and that, um, was really productive. Yeah, I had a woman come to me and say, say that she felt very insecure. And that meant that when she was in meetings with people that she didn't know, she would get uh, extremely nervous and sort of <laughs> black out and, and not be able to articulate herself the way she wanted to, to build the relationship she wanted to. So, And this was um, an increasing problem, problem for her since she wanted to advance in her job, but uh, kept sort of bumping into this insecurity uh, that was especially uh, intense when she was doing uh, presentations or in meetings with large groups. And and one of the things that we did in talking, uh, in, in our coaching conversation was to sort of externalize that uncertainty so that mm -hmm she stopped seeing herself as an insecure person, but externalizing the problem of being, uh, of feeling insecurity and uh, try to map out sort of what were the effects of this insecurity in her life and in her work. How could she position herself against it or try and, and um, bring it out from her sort of self story to something that she could visualize as either putting in a trash bin or taking the insecurity and put it outside of the door. So we had sort of mm -hmm. developed certain tricks for her to be able to relate to the insecurity in a way where she didn't see it as defining for herself. And what happened was that she became, we sort of had a number of uh, things that she should do before meetings um, and it helped her to the degree where she was able to do meetings without be feeling insecure, without the nervousness um, and were uh, able to build relationships that were more equal and uh, be more natural in these meetings and it freed up so much energy for her and also filled her with a sense of pride that she was able to carry out this. She has been really successful in her uh, career and work and is seen as sort of a key employee now in her mm. department. So uh, one of the sort of um, cornerstones of narrative coaching is that the person is never the problem. It's a problem that's a problem. Mm. So that's Michael mm. White, who was sort of the, the founder of this approach. So it is a, we never see the the person or the individual as the problem but they may experience or kept hot hostage of certain problems that they need to sort of um uh work with and talk about and try and externalize in order to to 
decide whether these stories about themselves are good stories or not, if they're beneficial to them. Okay. And so is there, I don't know if this is too simple of a question based on the very sort of complex work you did with her, but it is there, uh, like, what was the sort of new story she was telling herself? Is that too simple, um, my, my sort of interpretation? No, I mean, part of the work is sort of trying to externalize the problems that we experienced to, or that she experienced, in this case, the uncertainty. And another is, uh, so that's one part of the coaching. Another part is to try and rewrite your story or reauthor your mm -hmm. story into a story that is more preferred to your identity and the way you want to be in the world. So in her case, one of the reasons why she felt nervous was because she felt that there was an unequal relationship between her and others in a, a meeting room, in example. And what she wanted to do was feel more equal then she was the underdog. So one of the things we talked about was why does this equal relationship mean much to her? What what were sort of other examples previously in her life where she had been able to see herself as equal in a relationship, whereas some the circumstances were uh, somewhat similar. So it, often when we narrate stories about ourselves, we look back on our lives and we pick out um, events that correspond to the story. So the events becomes a way of uh, supporting or confirming the story that we have around ourselves. This means that if we experience something, good or bad, that doesn't conform to this story, then it, we often forget and we don't think about it. So one of the things in the coaching session is to go, try and go back to your previous life and discover are there, have there been other incidents where I have actually been able to carry out a meeting where I haven't been nervous and what then characterized that meeting? Or have mm -hmm. I been able to establish a relationship where I felt like an equal partner? And if so, what, what did I do in that case and what did the others do? So trying to see sort of an emerging alternative story that she could tell about mm. herself as someone that is actually able to mm. establish equal relationships, that she is able to um, carry out a meeting without feeling extremely nervous. I'm reminded of something that um, is done in acceptance and commitment therapy when you talk about this. And and it's uh, it's the concept of diffusion, right? Diffusing the story or the thought um, and like separating yourself from it, detaching yourself from it. And um, I one of the things that I like that um, is uh, has proven effective in in research is singing um, the story to <laughs> singing the thought to separate from it. Right. So like, um, I don't know, like what would she sing? <laughs> I'm not as good as everybody right now. I'm having this. <laughs> I don't know. Right. I'm telling the story that I'm not as good as everybody right now, Woo -woo, whatever it is. Yeah. But he says that that's one of, when I say he, I'm talking about Stephen Hayes. Yeah. Um, but Stephen Hayes talks about that as like a good way to sort of separate from the story. Yeah. Um, and, um, I don't know. So I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking about sort of what you do, which is, 
Like, let's find a way to argue against the story based on history. Yeah. Um, is there anything you would add to that? Well, I must say it can be quite hard, actually, to think outside of your usual story. So it can ah, be yeah. very difficult to <laughs> to go back in time and remember things that are... Uh, that does not conform to the way that you usually see yourself. Um, mm -hmm. So, but often there is sort of small germs hidden <laughs> in in our um, experiences <laughs> that can be used to sort of start and think about yourself and narrate your story in different ways. And I also want to say when I talk about narratives, it's not necessarily sort of your career story or the story you tell to sell yourself as a researcher. It's more the story you tell yourself in order to understand who you are yourself. What are, because I know that you run a Facebook group of like a lot, uh, what is it, like 500 um academic women? We are. Uh, something like two, that. 200, like a, big group. a bit more than 200. Uh, said, okay. it, just for context in Denmark, there is probably, I don't know the exact number, but there's probably 600 uh, female academics. So, <laughs> and considering so it's all, a huge group. Yeah. <laughs> so I know in a, in an international context, 200 doesn't sound like much, but I, I find it's quite an achievement. <laughs> Uh, yes, absolutely. And I'm, I guess what I'm thinking about is the story stuff that comes up. Yeah. Are these some of the conversations that you have, like imposter syndrome or yeah. whatever, what are sort of the common stories that you hear in both your coaching clients, but also in this Facebook group yeah. um, where, where people are trying to achieve some sort of, um, I don't know, what did you call it? Next level in their career. Yeah, exactly. And what defines the next level is um, can be very individual, right? So it's not necessarily a traditional academic career path, but uh, it can be um, there can be many other different paths or a, a next step that is more relevant to you or important to you. So just to say that that whatever next level is is often individually defined. Okay. What I wanted to say was that in relation to, or when they uh, enter the Facebook group, they are asked, uh, the female academics in Scandinavia is asked uh, questions of why they want to join, but also what stands in the way of them achieving their next level. And I can see that their answers are sort of grouped around five different uh, obstacles. So one obstacle is um, finding a profile or a direction for the research. So a sense of feeling um, uh, scattered and not having a clear mm. direction on where you want to go with your research. Mm. Um, the other is, or the second is prioritizing, lacking overview, um, simply having the sense of having too much to do and too many uh, balls in the air. So it is, um, uh, yeah, you feel overwhelmed, basically. And then the okay. third obstacle that they point to is work-life balance, especially, of course, during the pandemic where 
in Denmark, you had to homeschool. Here in Sweden, we still had open schools, but in Denmark, um, there were lots of homeschooling taking place. And I know you can probably relate to that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the lack of mobility, because you are um, a mother as well. So um, moving the family can also be seen. So the lack of mobility can be seen as a problem. And then the, the fourth category of obstacles is that uh, lack of self-trust or belief that you Mm. can do it, that you Mm. can communicate whatever you want to communicate, that you're able to build a network, that you're able to put yourself out there. And then finally, it's time, time to write and publish and do grant applications. So Mm. I try when I organize my activities in the group to sort of center it around these five different categories and especially the uh, sort of belief, uh, the, the, the self-doubt around can I do it? Can I um, communicate what I want to do? Can I build a network? Can I, can I do the next step? Is something that I encounter a lot in my coaching. So that's often why people sort of seek me out that or sort of being able to define your profile and figure out what is it that I want to do in my research and how can I um, explain that in ways where it provides clarity to myself but also to others around me and uh, both colleagues, um, uh, heads of departments, but also to, to uh, funders and, and others, colleagues. Uh, outside the, their home university so yeah okay so um I, I guess one of the things that's striking me is um so much of the stories are around issues of time because I'm like work-life balance time to write and publish um what was it yeah. too much to do yeah. um and so <clears throat> I know this is so big. I'm thinking about like uh, the book Slow Professor, yeah. uh, where they talk about time yeah. poverty. I'm thinking about um, there's a, a coach I know, Jill Farmer, who has a book about like how to like retell a new story about time. Yeah. Um, and so I'm wondering, what are some of the things that you're doing um, to, <laughs> I don't know, to inject a new narrative about time and how? Uh, yeah. Yeah, how do you do that? Because that's a huge issue. Yeah. I'm a little bit in doubt whether it is a huge issue. <laughs> because, ah. because I do find that many of the reasons we give for not taking the next step or playing big in our career is that we feel that we lack time. So it's a very, I think everyone can relate to that. Everyone can understand that. Everyone resonates with that. However, what I find is that when I work with my coaching clients and we talk about time and we find ways where they can find time to, in example, write what they need to write, then there are often other things that stand in the way that are more ingrained in or a deeper psychological layer if you want even though totally. um, 
uh, I'm perhaps I'm not trained a trained uh, psychologist, so I I try to stick to my narrative um, approach. <laughs> but there then there are other things that stands in the way, but it's often more harder to articulate. Um, uh, it often requires much more reflections around yourself and your work and who am I in this world and in, in academia. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So then it's perhaps a bit easier to say I lack time. Thereby not, I mean, we. I think everyone that has a career and a family at the same time find that there simply isn't enough hours in in the day. And I also think that the slow movement, taking time to rest, to relax is very important to our well-being. So mm-hmm. um, I, from my research in corporations, I can see that there is sort of a speed up in change. There's a speed up when it comes to uh, we have to change uh, digitally. We had there are constantly new um, regulations or law that needs to be. Um, you need to comply to, then there's strategic change, then in academia there would be an accreditation process that's going on. There is constantly several change processes going on at the same time, uh, which means that uh, we are sort of in a process of constant change and it sort of, it speeds up our lives and all the things that we have to do in a way that's perhaps not, that is not healthy to our ability to be curious, reflexive, creative in our work. So I do see that there is lots of tensions around time, but I also think that we should not only look at the time aspect because there's lots of strategies you can do to prioritize your time, but often it's more of a mindset issue that is at play. Totally, totally, totally. And I am, I'm still hit by, I was like, you know, and that feels like a really big problem. It is a really big problem. People talk about time issues all the time in academia. And (laughs) I'm going to replay that in my mind all the time. You're like, well, actually, um, it, I don't, I'm not sure that it is a problem. And, um, you're, and I, I could not agree with you more because one of the things I'm thinking about is, like, I know that time was a, like, that was the hardest thing for me when I was in academia. And I would always talk about it as like the thing that scared me the most. Yeah. If there is anything that scared me more than, more than anything else, it was that I wasn't going to get things done. I needed to get done that I was going to run out of time. But then when you go beneath that, which which is what you're talking about. I know when I started going beneath that, it was, oh, no, it is. I believe I have this core belief that I'm incompetent. Yeah. And so I need extra time so that I can prove to the world and myself that I am competent. Um, and I'm just trying to think about some of the other things that, that were beneath that. But anyway, that's, that's the big one. That's the big one that comes up for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, 
you may find that you go on a, um, a writing retreat and you carve out perhaps two days or three days to actually work uh, <laughs> on a, a book chapter or journal article or whatever you are writing on. And then when you sit there and you have the time, then you are stuck. I mean, you get writer's block, you cannot uh, write anything because you have these... Um, uh, inner critic thoughts just racing in your mind, right? Telling you that whatever will be put on the page will be crap anyway, and people will laugh when they start reading mm -hmm. it, and no one will care. And I mean, there can be tons of um, inner critic monologue that drives you crazy, <laughs> even though you have mm -hmm. all the time in the world. That would mean that you still would not be able to um, to write. So, uh, on the other hand, I also do want to recognize that, especially um, uh, academics with families, they it is a struggle to make ends meet. And I do know that, um, yeah, it's a constant concern for many. And that's why I do think also that prioritizing and narrating the more formal story about you and why you do the research that you do is important. This is what's coming up for me. And it is that when I left academia, I was like, yes, I have now so much more time to do the things I really want to do. And I can really move in a direction I want to move in. And I have all this freedom. And then suddenly I was dealing with time issues in a very similar way. And I was feeling really constricted again. And I was feeling like I had to push hard again. And I had to do, and, and it was basically the same feeling that I felt when I was in academia. And so I felt like I had, I had graduated to freedom yeah. and then I didn't have it. Um, <clears throat> so I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking about all the sort of work I've had to do to unpack that. And I'm also realizing that I could have unpacked all of that while still in academia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I could have found the freedom that I was really craving while I was still there. That, that was absolutely possible. Um, when you talk about, um, family stuff though um that has been really hard for me for a much longer time like creating that balance between family and career and i think that one of the big things that i have found is that when i think of family time as like a process like I am building a long-term relationship with my child mm. or I am creating sort of a home foundation um, for my family and there, and, and that can't be done in an hour or in 30 no. minutes or whatever. Like it has to be done over the long term. And so when I think of it as not a product that needs to be achieved, no. <laughs> I can be more present. I can be more relaxed. I have never thought about it that way, but it sounds like a good idea. So that, that would be a way of sort of reframing your own 
story about your relationship to your kids as something that has to be a product that has to be sort of achieved or something that has to be achieved uh, to another story that this is a process it's ongoing it needs um it cannot be confined to a specific time or a time period um in order to emerge and evolve so it um yeah but i have never myself thought about it that way but i'm very inspired i'm wondering like what are some of the stories you yourself have uh changed your narrative to um so that you can feel a little bit more freedom or whatever it is you're looking for yeah well especially around being um a mom uh, and an academic i have found that it is uh, very hard to live up to my own story about what constitutes a good mother so mm. um it's part of my uh, history that I am a first generation academic. So there were no academics in my family. I grew up in the rural countryside of Denmark, a very beautiful place, but um, not filled with academics <laughs> in any way. <laughs> and um, that meant that I I grew up with a dad who were an academic and my mom was a nurse for the first um, long period of my childhood. And um, so I experienced a, a family, like a sort of the idyllic image of a, a nuclear family um, mm -hmm. where we have time to talk, time to be together, time to go on vacation together. Um, so I never experienced that my parents didn't have time to, <laughs> to be with me. Mm. And I think growing, um, then becoming a mother myself, I really struggled with how I could be a good mother for my kids while at the same time also having um, my academic job, which I really love. So um yeah. I have had to, I've, I've tried to take my own medicine and sort of um, try and, and make um, and realize what were, what are some of the, the norms of a good mother that I was struggling with instead of uh, concluding I'm a bad mother, then trying to understand mm. where does this story come from? What are the norms around me that I'm trying to live up to? Um, do my kids even, <laughs> do they even think that I'm a bad mother or a good mother? Mm. Usually they do think I'm a good mother. Um, <laughs> uh, how can I redefine what a good mother is to me and to our family? So for me, it's something about being a good role model and showing that if you want to you can do almost anything in the world if you put your mind to mm. it um mm. using the opportunities that academia also gives so in terms of uh, being flexible and picking up my my kids early once in a while being at home working from home if they are sick um yeah. 
bringing them, I very often bring them and my husband to academic conferences, and then they go and explore um, the surroundings. And uh, while I do all the academic uh, parts of the conference experience, so I do try and think about how can I then define what is motherhood to me in a way that where I think that I'm a good mother rather than trying to live up to uh, past ideas of what a good mother was or even contemporary ideas of being uh, uh, available, uh, being being the one that attends all the the soccer games for my daughter, whatever it can be, but that... that uh, um yeah rethinking that and uh i'm also very fortunate that i have a very supporting husband so that mm. it is more of a a dual uh lift of the workload rather than uh the mother running the house at home <laughs> yeah i told him when i first yes. met him if you're looking for a house mom you need to move on because that's not me and he still jokes about that because I, I remind him often that I'm not the housekeeper. <laughs> I have the same thing. I'm so grateful to my husband because it's it's the same. It's very it's very equal. And, and but I guess what I'm thinking about is that when you are telling yourself this new story, like this is what a good mother does. A good mother a good academic mother takes her family with her to academic conferences and she, you know, whatever it is, and I'm doing those things. And when you have that story that makes you feel good and proud of who you are, you can relax yeah. and you can be calm and you can be more present with your kids rather than, oh, I got to make this dinner just perfect. And if it's not perfect, and then you're telling your kids to get out of the kitchen because you've got to make this perfect yeah. dinner. Right? And so then you actually, the, the calmer you get based on the story you're telling, yeah. the better you do become at yeah. mothering. And um, I must say the whole dinner thing, I mean, uh, my mother made, us dinner in my family every night it was uh, I mean doing takeout was like a once in a year <laughs> event mm. um uh, and it has haunted me for a long time that I was the one <laughs> who had to cook dinner for my family even though I was the one who who uh, who returned home late and was uh super tired and perhaps haven't even done the grocery shopping so um so i've i that it, that particular practice has been something that i have had to sort of rethink even here in the in the recent years and months uh, to um accept that it is also okay if it's not a like a three course dinner every night mhm mhm Oh, and okay. the kids want pizza um, anyway. So. <laughs> oh my gosh, every night. If they could have pizza every night, they would. Totally. <laughs> and and in their mind, I would be a good mom if I served them pizza every night. So it's a win-win. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't know pizza was like a global issue for all parents. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> okay, well... Um, Sana, I want to ask you if there's anything you want 
to make sure gets said in this conversation so that it feels complete to you? Well, I um, in part of your uh, question, you said when you um, left academia, you felt super excited, then still struggled with some of the same issues that you had mm-hmm. in academia time-wise. I, mm-hmm. since part of my research and interest is also how people respond during uh, a crisis situation. And I do think sort of switching careers can be considered as a, a crisis process where you are in a, in a very, or often it's very uncom- an uncomfortable state where you are yeah. un- when you are unsure of whether to go in one direction or another. So there is a time period there where you are trying to figure out how can I leave if I start and to do something else, especially leaving academia because academics often see their academic work as an essential part of their identity. So Mm -hmm. making that shift can be quite exhausting, I feel. So though, and what I found in in some of my research around um, crisis is that you are often torn in sort of an emotional dissonance between feeling competing or yeah, you feel competing emotions. So you can both feel excited, but also exhausted from uh, thinking about it, um, debating with your friends, uh, whatever it can be, your, your family calculating, can this be done financially? So there's lots of um, back and forth, and it's often a process as well where you feel both excited for the new loss um, and sadness for what you are leaving behind, Uh, Mm. perhaps even a sense of failure, but also a sense of success because you made the decision and and leave uh, to leave academia. So there's often this emotional dissonance in that period of time when you experience a crisis where you try and resolve it through working on your identity story and trying to figure out, okay, if this is not the story that I can tell about myself, then what is the story then? So even though you may Mm -hmm. feel liberated, you also feel um, scared because there is a void here where you need to... uh, um, craft a new story about who you are without having yet experienced what that new life looks looks like. Okay, tell me where I'm wrong. You can, or many of us, at least I'm hearing this in what you're saying, many of us might jump to an identity story yeah. so that we can manage the crisis yeah. that we're currently feeling and um and it may not necessarily be about identity no it may it may be something different entirely yeah so there's a possibility of jumping at sort of ready-made narratives for you then you become an entrepreneur Uh, then you emerge yourself in the entrepreneurial world and with hang out with entrepreneurial people <laughs> so then then you jump to a ready-made uh narrative 
Uh, totally oh god i love that that's so good that's so good okay (laughs) keep going i'm sorry that can feed into your new um uh, sort of shaky narrative that's not finalized yet one of the Uh things that happen if it's sort of a crisis that comes from the outside that moves us to do something else is that um if we take covid as an example that what happens in the beginning of the COVID pandemic was um, sort of a breakdown in meaning and our way of making sense of the world as an orderly, rational place. So how we usually navigated in the world didn't work anymore. We saw ourselves as someone teaching in the classrooms, as going to the offices, as going to conferences or um, being active in relationship face-to-face with other people and all of a sudden we were home we were teaching online and we had to adjust quite quickly so Karl Weick who is sort of um, a big figure in sense making talks about a cosmological breakdown because the cosmos the way we understand the world breaks down and when that happens it becomes um truly difficult to find meaning so during a crisis we can Mm -hmm. also have the sense of meaningless so what we before found was meaningful for us to do seems all of a sudden meaningless so Mm -hmm. i think many can sort of recognize this Mm -hmm. uh, sense of what is the purpose of all this so here i am writing on my little paper while the the world outside is um, Mm. outside my office is going crazy um Mm. or collapsing right breaks down um uh, so in that case so i one option is to go for other sort of ready-made uh narratives but what often happens is that we sort of um our way of telling stories become very fragmented. We test out different storylines in the way that we speak. We try and test, okay, so could could this perhaps be a way of understanding what we do now? Or could this be a way of, <laughs> of understanding what is going on? And then as we mm-hmm. get feedback from others, we get our own, um, uh, or we um, have our own experience, then we start sort of slowly, slowly, crafting new narratives about who we are but there is a process there uh, while under crisis that starts with the breakdown of meaning where we start searching for new meaning which is often very sort of chaotic messy fragmented and lots of things are going on so even though you when you tell your story now that you came out and were sort of yes <laughs> i managed to escape academia um uh-huh. in your case right then uh-huh. it might there might have been have been a lot of sort of thought processes and meaning making going on before that that also leaves you exhausted Oh God, this is just so good. I love this so much. Okay. Okay. So I know we have to go. Um, but I want to ask about like that fragmented sort of messy place. Many of my listeners are finding themselves in right now, right? Many of them are in career crisis. They are trying to decide what to do and how would you recommend they go about um this whole like 
process? How do they manage the crisis, um, given sort of your expertise in uh, narrative? <laughs> they call you and, or me. <laughs> and we figure it out. <laughs> but, uh, I don't think there is a quick fix. I think what I often mm. return to that never works, but I, I always do sort of uh, these sheets of <laughs> pros and cons. And I think about, uh, so it's a very sort of cognitive thought process trying to figure out what would be the best solution, but it never works for me. And I haven't seen it work <laughs> for anyone else. No. So it is about, it's more for me about sort of trying to figure out what is important to you in your life or what, in my case, what is important to me in my life and how can I achieve that either in where I am now. And if it's not possible to achieve here, what, what would an ideal scenario look like? And then I would, instead of, it's not always possible, but try out, as much as at all possible in small steps, what would a different life look like? So instead of sort of uh, ending your job from from one day to the other, <laughs> I don't know your story, Danielle, if you did that, but it could be if, if your idea was to be a coach, then try and do some coaching session and figure out does, how does this feel to me? Um, what do I get out of that? So, so, actually take advantage of the messiness and the fragmented life that you feel, even though it's very um, difficult emotionally to be in, but use it as a, as a way to experiment, experiment, to uh, play, to try out different things, even if it's on a small scale, because then it's easier to figure out what, oh, this I really like. So why do I like that? How does that, have I experienced that situation before in my life that I may have forgotten? Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. can I start to think about myself and talk about myself in ways where this become part of my life and my story? Okay. And so I guess what I would say around that is like, uh, relaxing into what you're saying, like relaxing into, oh, that's an interesting thought. That's yeah. something that I could try. Like, I think that is the most important piece, yeah. at, at least in my mind, in yeah. my experience, as opposed to what I would do, which is, okay, this is the thing. I'm going to go full force on that. Yeah. I'm going to use a lot of self-pressure. I'm going to, you know, do all the things to make this thing happen and push and push and push and push. Yeah. Um, and then I'm like, why do I still feel the same way I felt when I was in career crisis? Yeah. Um, and so it's like letting yourself try things out, letting yourself go through all the sort of thought processes and all of that, but in a relaxed state, you know, in a way that doesn't put pressure on yourself to move to the next thing as quickly as possible, yeah. right? Just chilling out. <laughs> yeah. And um, I'm very inspired by Tara Moore, who has written the book mm -hmm. Playing Big. And mm -hmm. uh, she writes about constructing uh, mini leaps. So where you sort of um, uh, plan within a time frame of one or two weeks to do something that enables you to get knowledge 
about yourselves or uh, about yourself or about others um to figure out if this could be a way to go towards playing yeah. bigger so even a very sp- <laughs> like hosting a meeting at home where you invite people to come and uh hear you talk about whatever you would like to talk about or doing sort of small small scale uh um things that reminds or uh are similar to what you would like to do on a big scale in order to mm. figure out if this could be an option for you so that's a way to also um, good, yeah. get experience that can feed into a new narrative <laughs> a new narrative about yourself because it's very hard to um change completely your story so often we instead we talk about reauthoring so trying to bring out other things in the experience you've had in the past mm. yeah mm-hmm. okay i have so much more i want to say but i know we have to wrap up um <laughs> this was I'm so good. You're much to fun <laughs> I I mean I, I oh what was it that I wanted to say I tried to tell myself to shut up and so I think I I lost it I was like shh Danielle be quiet no more shh 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 um it's like five what what time is it it's six fifteen where you are yeah. um in the evening yes. so I should probably let you go um uh okay should people want to reach out to you should people want to uh i don't know connect with you somehow how might they get a hold of you well they are very welcome to connect on linkedin i am there under my the name here sene fransen and i um also have my website which is senefransen.com if you are in Scandinavia, you can, you are more than welcome in the Facebook group. Um, it's called Next Level uh, Career Community for Quinley Fosker, which means career community for female academics. Um, I also have, a, I call it a newsletter, but it's more, a, <laughs> it's more once a semester kind of thing where I. Uh, a right to uh, people if we do activities uh, that are, um, uh, if we have, an example, guests that are international, so you can be notified and participate in that because we often do that live mm. outside of Facebook. So that's also on my website. You can sign up for what I call a newsletter, but you really will not be bombarded because I have too much uh, to do to uh, to write three times a week. But um, you will get notified if I do uh, some activities. I can say that um, uh, earlier this week, we I did an interview with Patrice Busanel, who is a professor mm-hmm. um, at University of South Florida, I think it is. <laughs> Now she used to be. I just know her name because I know she's big. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, in in organizational communication. Yes, exactly. And she um, does research in on careers, motherhood, work life, resilience. Um, So I did an interview with her about sort of uh, motherhood and um, career in academia. 
uh, and that's recorded. So if anyone is interested in listening to that, they're also welcome to, to reach out. And before that, we had Uskun um, Unva, who talked about burnout. I know she's also been on your podcast. So I do yes. uh, these uh, talks where we meet on Zoom and people can can sort of join and listen in and ask their questions if they have any. I love it. Okay, cool. Um, I, I got to say that I can tell you're a coach because I feel the need to tell you all about my story. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. This normally would be the time I tell you where you can follow me on social media, but I'm mostly quitting social media. It's the self-compassionate thing to do. I'm still on LinkedIn, but uh, I rarely post. So don't follow me. Send me a connection request and send me a message. And as always, you can schedule a 20-minute consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. And I'm sending a wish that you too will do the self-compassionate thing, whatever that is for you. Take care.